0: Let me give you guys an example. A couple of years ago, Geisinger Health System up in Pennsylvania found that they were spending $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled elderly diabetics. Okay, so these are all folks over 65, absolutely out of control diabetes, not doing anything to take care of it. 300 grand per patient per year. So they started a diabetic meal delivery program for these folks, and within 14 months, they dropped that average cost per patient to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of preparing these medically appropriate diabetic meals and then delivering them to these families, they saved $192,000 per patient per year. That's a 35x.
1: We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Off the Clock, the healthcare entrepreneur's podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University and class is in session. and we are live
2: welcome to another edition of off the clock the healthcare entrepreneurs podcast as always i am the captivating motivating tentilating and money-making mr carl Born jr and i'm joined by my main man mr paulo cheng paul say what's up to the
1: people what's up to the people before we get started i'm just gonna say this i'm just gonna do a poll for the listeners now because i've had it listeners i need y'all to give me an introduction As of right now, I might as well just get the name Paul tatted across my chest, because that's who I am. I need y'all to help me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to text out a poll to everybody and just give me your options. And that's what we're going to go with. But I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, Paul. Don't worry, bro. We'll get you right. We'll get you right.
2: To our listeners, man, you guys know every week what the deal is. We love to bring you special guests that help your business, help your brand really help your life. And this week is no exception. With that being said, uh, really excited for this episode today. Um, I feel like we got an OG in the building. (laughs) This will be fun. But without further ado, I want to go ahead and um, introduce our guest today, man. He's one of uh, the most thoughtful experts in the healthcare industry and government health programs, founder of Gorman Health Group, and now Nightingale Partners, a firm connecting capital to payers and providers of care to the medically undeserved. He was appointed, this is a big one y'all, he was appointed by President Clinton as the first assistant to the Director of Healthcare Financing Administration's Office of Managed Care, where he provided day-to-day management and he served as the external liaison for the Medicare and Medicaid Managed Care programs. We got the OG, Mr. John Gorman, in the house. John, how you feeling, man? Thank
0: you so hey, much. I've never been better, brother. Thanks for having me. Hey, Paul, how you feeling? Great to be on with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, John, we like to
2: be respectful of our guest time. You know, we know you're a busy guy. You're out here killing it. So Are
0: we off the clock, man. We're good. <laughs> yes, Sir. <laughs> I'm good. I have my beer, man. I i had a little smoke before we came on we off the clock we just ready to jump oh oh, we're just we're just chilling then all right i'm ready to talk let's
2: do it then so the first thing we like to do john is we like to start with why you know because it's always important for Mm -hmm. listeners to be able to understand why and um you've been able to to really be a mover and shaker in this industry and so with that being said uh why did you even choose to pursue the field of healthcare? How did how did we get here? How did this whole thing evolve? Tell us.
0: You know, it was interesting. When I was coming out of the Clinton administration, uh, I was like, man, I am just not a good fit in a bureaucracy. You know, I like to go at my own pace. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that drives me craziest is people driving slow in the left lane when I'm driving. I like to go at my own speed, and I was just not a good fit in a bureaucracy. And when I was coming out, I just really thought, you know, I'd like to kind of go and work for myself and see if I can make this work. I had 15 grand in the bank when I came out of the administration. And I figured that'd give me about six months if I hung out a shingle to see if I can make it work. And, um, you know, so I was out of the administration about two weeks and I was working on my business plan and the Wall Street Journal called me up to comment on some regulation in healthcare that, that had been relevant at the time. And I gave a, I gave a quote and a couple of insurance companies saw it and said, are you the same John Gorman who worked in the Clinton administration? Yeah. He said, well, what are you doing now? And come and help us with this or that. And, and we never looked back. So that's, you know, that's how I kind of got my taste of the private sector and never went back.
1: That's my favorite song to sing. Let me tell you that.
0: Exactly. No, no.
1: (laughs) I I love hearing that. Especially, you know, Here's a, here's a kicker, that awareness. I think a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, health entrepreneurs too, that awareness is necessary. And I tend to think there's a missing piece, right? So kicker, if, if nobody knows yet, I'm currently on a war path with the APTA and physical therapy as a profession, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people just are not aware of what they can actually do. By this, I mean, just understanding that we're more than just like what we used to do our past or like even what we assume our degree defines us as, right? Just becoming aware that there needs to be a step that needs to be taken. That's why I love what you said. Like you came out of the administration. You're like, bureaucracy is not for me. (laughs) Let me go figure something else out because that awareness, what did that allow you to do? Being in the right position at the right time to be exposed to great things.
0: You know, the second is. The essence of entrepreneurship, right? It's 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 meeting a need in the marketplace that's going unmet. And when I came out of the administration, my my job for President Clinton was running all of the Medicare and Medicaid HMO programs back in the early 90s. And so I was I was 25 and I had about a 79 billion dollar portfolio, which that kind of shit only happens in DC. And um, when I came out, you know, I realized like all of these health insurance companies have no idea how to take care of poor people. And they have no idea how to take care of elderly people. Most insurance companies in the early nineties were used to taking care of young, healthy folks like you guys. And they had no idea how to do business with the government. And when you're doing business with the government, the first rule is obey their rules. And most of these companies had no idea how to do, what we think of today as regulatory compliance. And how do you organize around making sure you're not stepping on landmines with your biggest customer, which is the federal or state government. And um, so that was how Gorman Health Group was born. And our job was to help big insurance companies stay out of trouble with the government by building their operations in such a way that they would never get in trouble. And it was a unique capability at the time. It was meeting the need in the marketplace. And I was young and dumb enough to think at the time that we could go and do something about it. And we did.
1: Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> um, listen, I was going to hit you with a few fluff questions, but forget that. Let's go into the heavy stuff. Hey, man, go I right. Right don't need to warm up anymore. We're warmed Great. up. All right. So, okay. Now I have to start asking you about <clears throat> certain things because one you already had the experience and, and you're, you're this young guy and you're just like, these people really don't know shit. Like they don't know what is going on. Right. So now I have to ask you because you're in this position and it was like, okay, or even currently, what then are you really trying to do to change healthcare? Yeah. Cause I mean, it's jacked up.
0: Yeah, exactly. So- well, back then it was, it was all about how to keep insurance companies from killing poor and elderly people by accident, because they just didn't know how to organize themselves around taking care of very sick people, right? So uh, we started there. And now today, you know, God, 30 years later, what Nightingale does is, is invest in large scale interventions in social determinants of health, which are basically four fancy words for poverty. So now we work with insurance companies to build infrastructure to better serve low-income, vulnerable people. So we we focus on food security, we focus on housing security, transportation, so that people can get to doctor's appointments or to an urgent care or to a pharmacy to pick up their scripts, right? Uh, folks like the assignment of community health workers who are uh, basically social workers without a license who live in this vulnerable community, know their way around and can help serve as a navigator for vulnerable or complex patients in that neighborhood. And, you know, as investors, we now realize that those types of anti-poverty initiatives yield reliably three to eight X returns on investment just by dealing with basic human needs in poverty, right? And those are great investments. And so we've now built a firm around investing in these types of benefits and services and then sharing in some of the savings with the insurance company that we're working with. So it's it's been an interesting evolution in the stuff that I've done over 30 years. But man, I got the scars on my ass of a man twice my age, fellas.
2: <laughs> no, John, you've definitely been putting in some work, man. Um, oh, let I'm me done. ask you, like in, in terms of, in terms of the business, you know, uh, Nightingale Partners and Gorman Health Group, as you guys are going out there and you're determining, you know, what projects you're investing into, what does that look like from a standpoint of the funding aspect of it? Like, is it crowdfunding? You know, do you have some angel investors? Like, Like, what does that aspect look like? And then also for people who are listening, is there an opportunity to be able to invest in these types of things as well?
0: And what does that look like? It, these are not necessarily those types of investments at all, guys. So when you know, typically our our check size is, is no less than 25 million on these types of investments that we do. Like I said, these are large-scale investments in, in really anti-poverty initiatives with insurance companies for their most vulnerable, complex and fragile patients. So, you know, um, typically are because we are an opportunity zone fund. So the opportunity zone program came out of Trump's big tax giveaway bill a couple of years ago. And, but this was Cory Booker's program that was designed to uh, encourage investment in real estate in disadvantaged communities. And I was at home two years ago, sitting on my ass, retired, when I got a notification on my phone that the IRS had just completely rewritten the regulations for the Opportunity Zone program. And no longer was it just about buying research, uh, I'm sorry, uh, real estate in disadvantaged communities. It was now you could use it for leases, but more importantly, for our purposes, that you could use this $6 trillion available through the Opportunity Zone program for working capital or to meet the business needs of a new co, of a new company you were starting in one of the 9,000 Opportunity Zones across the United States today, which are all economically disadvantaged communities. And they are almost all medically underserved, which means they don't have enough basic access to healthcare services which means, you know, that's the hallmark of systemic racism in healthcare. And so for us, I I literally sat up on my couch, scared the shit out of my pit bull. And and I said, man, that's it. Now we've got a a pool of capital that we can access to make big investments in these types of initiatives that we know from all the research yields a three to eight X return on investment." let me give you guys an example. A couple of years ago, Geisinger Health System up in Pennsylvania found that they were spending $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled elderly diabetics. Okay, so these are all folks over 65, absolutely out of control diabetes, not doing anything to take care of it. Three hundred grand per patient per year. So they started a diabetic meal delivery program for these folks. And within 14 months, they dropped that average cost per patient to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of preparing these medically appropriate diabetic meals and then delivering them to these families, they saved $192,000 per patient per year. That's a 35x return on investment. And look, as an investor, you will never find anything that gets you to 35X ROI unless you bought Bitcoin in May of 2019, right? So this kind of stuff that basically awakened me and I hope many others to the absolute huge opportunity of investing in direct human needs and addressing poverty and how that reduces healthcare costs, improves quality of care, and then that's how you sustainably finance these types of benefits and services. Does that make sense? It makes
1: sense. Um, you know, I think it's just taking us, we're taking a sec to, you know, take it all in, yeah. um, especially just because I think for the, I'll just say it, the blatant opportunity that was right there is actually insane. Yeah right? Um, The question I want to ask you really then comes to how how then does Nightingale Partners really make the decision on how to spend that money? Because to our listeners, all they heard is we write checks of 25 million, there's 6 trillion available. Where, Where does it go? How do you make
0: that decision, how to you know, allocate it. Everything that we do is completely and utterly data driven. And if for no other reason than as an opportunity zone fund, right? Our syndicate of investors tend to be huge corporations, often the ones that we're partnering with, and they'll invest some of their own money and put it to work through these uh, th- these types of investments. But most of our investors are frankly Republican billionaires who are standing behind me tapping their foot saying, how's our money being spent this week, John? And what kind of results are we getting? What kind of impact are we getting for that money that we spent, John? So everything that we do has to be data-driven and it has to be quantifiable and measurable because these guys ain't playing. And so if I can't demonstrate to them and quantify to them the impact that we're having, they're, they're gonna pull their money and go someplace else. So all of our projects we lead first with analytics so we'll look at a, at a community and we will do um a really really intense data analysis on what's going on in terms of unmet social needs in that community so for instance we're we're doing a huge project right now in baltimore literally in west baltimore literally on the block where they shot the wire i don't know if you guys ever watch the wire but I mean, we're, that's where, where we are working. And we looked at over 5,000 sources of data to determine uh, a really comp- comprehensive picture of what the needs were in West Baltimore for the big insurer there in, that, in, that, in uh, West Baltimore. And we found that we had huge issues in uh, diabetes, of course, um, in food insecurity, in housing insecurity that the average house in West Baltimore was 85 years old, literally falling down around the residents' years. And that means then that you've got basic infrastructure problems like does the water work? Do they have pest infestations, right? And what kind of home modifications are gonna be needed to help make a community like this healthy? Diabetes was rampant. Diabetes was leading to two thirds of the black women in this community delivering their babies preterm and having a rate of maternal and child death that was four to six times the white population of Baltimore. And largely that was being driven by gestational diabetes. So these were women who were overweight, can't get access to good food, then they get pregnant and then their diabetes goes off the charts and they have a preterm kid that dies at a much higher rate And then the mothers themselves were dying at these staggering rates as well. So we look at that whole picture and we say, all right, we're going into West Baltimore with a peer-based diabetic counseling program. We're going in with a a diabetic meal delivery program, but because food security is a huge problem for this entire community, we're gonna do food security for everybody because we've learned that if you try to feed diabetics Good, healthy food but they have hungry kids in the house that diabetic meal goes to the kids and so you have to end up feeding the whole family in order to get the diabetic who's costing the health system three hundred thousand dollars a year to eat a good healthy meal and to keep her doing that uh, we're going to put in birthing centers and peer-based counseling programs for black women so that they can maintain good maternal health pre baby and then after baby and it's you know critical that we're extending those well baby services a year after the baby's been born because so many black children die within that first year of life uh, we're going in with housing supports so we're going to be doing home modifications for folks who are disabled or who are fall risks and we're going to be putting up bumpers and railings and uh, you know, making sure that there's not exposed wiring and we're going to be doing pest control in many of these houses. Because if you've got kids who are asthmatic, but they're living in a moldy basement apartment or there's cockroaches everywhere that are exacerbating their asthma and they're in the ER every week because of it, let's kill all the roaches. Let's get rid of the mold because it's a hell of a lot cheaper than that kid being in the ER every week for a year. And so it's the data that drives all of these interventions and make sure that what we're going to be investing our money in is going to help the most people the fastest and you know, with the biggest impact in terms of improving the quality of care and reducing their costs. Does that make sense? Good.
2: 100%. Um, before, before I ask my next question, I'm going to move into, we have a segment on our show, John, which is our Black Health segment. And uh, we just use that to kind of talk about some disparities, talk about some issues and uh, provide, you know, like some some helpful resources. What I want to talk about today is is high, high blood pressure and um, guys just want to go ahead and put it out there. There may be things that you hear myself and Paul talk about on segments that it's like you may have heard us address that issue before. But we're going to keep bringing you new information, we're going to keep bringing you different things, because these are the things that are um, running rampant, you know, in, in the African American community that need to be addressed. So for today, the underlying causes of health disparities have been linked to genetics, lack of economic resources, as you know, John, limited access to healthcare, as you know, and mentioned, delay in treatment, cultural beliefs, low literacy and health literacy rates, and also certain environmental factors. African-American men are 30% likely to get high blood pressure and African-American women 60% more likely to have high blood pressure. Um. So for today, what I want to really bring to light for you guys is your salt consumption, right? Because again, you know, as you were alluding to John, when you don't have the resources for healthy food, it's very easy to get what's convenient. It's very easy to get what is available to you so exactly exactly so according to the american heart association you should have no more than 2300 milligrams of sodium a day for most adults an ideal limit of no more than 1500 per day is recommended so guys stay away from foods that are high in sodium such as processed food natural foods with a higher than average sodium content these could be cheese uh, seafood olives some legumes, table salt, sea salt, and also some over-the-counter drugs. So if you're in doubt, read the label. So to kind of combat that, what I want you guys to think of is to eat more heart healthy foods, right? So what does that look like? That means eating more fruits and vegetables, eating fruit and raw vegetables as snacks, right? Instead of Cheetos or Doritos or, you know, things like that. Um, And selected unsalted nuts or seeds, dry beans, peas, lentils, Um, unsalted or low sodium fat free broths or soup, and also avoiding using canned vegetables with added salt when you're making your homemade dishes. Um, So, you know, this was a big thing that I wanted to highlight today. And the last piece that I'll tell you also exercise is so important, guys. Um, I know I said this before in a previous episode, that even if you have seven days of a week out of the week, You just exercise for three days, 30 minutes each day, it's better than nothing at all. Um, The American Heart Association again recommends two and a half hours of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week, Uh, but try to aim for a total of 40 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity three to four times each week. So even if that's walking down the street, you know, a couple of times, if you have some stairs in your house, going up and down the stairs, um, you know, going for a run, being able to do exercises at home, if you you can't afford a gym program or whatever the case may be. But the most important thing, guys, is to just make sure that you move. You know, in physical therapy, we have a saying, which is motion is lotion, but also movement is medicine. So um, just wanted to bring that to light today for for this Black Health segment, guys. So watch your uh, salt consumption, make sure you're making better choices as far as what you're eating. And also, don't forget that if there's anything that you guys are not sure of or you need some help, be sure to text the number that me and Paul have for you. And we'd be more than happy to send you some resources, um, send you some information so that you can start making better and healthier choices for yourself. Um, Okay, so, John, back to back to business.
0: (laughs) Great stuff. This is my business. Yeah.
2: I want to ask you, so in terms of, and and I I love the fact that you say, you know, everything is data driven, right? Because it's so important to be able to have those metrics and those key performance indicators, you know, so you know what what you're going towards. When you guys go about looking at the data, now, is there any additional steps you're taking? Like, are you going into the community and also like providing surveys, like, Walk us through what that what that process looks like, making sure that you have data that is adequate, you know,
0: and, and it's also up to date as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, before we even start to consider a project, much less underwrite one, um, you know, the, the analytics that we're using, we're looking at 5,000 different sources of publicly available data that gives us a very robust profile of what's going on in that community. So we're not looking at just median income and census data. We're looking at how many people in this neighborhood checked into the shelter system in the last two years. How many people in this neighborhood checked into a food bank in the last year? How many of these folks have had their house foreclosed on or their cars repossessed? Um, How many of their kids are in school and what's the truancy rate in that neighborhood and that gives us a sense a very clear sense of what are the unmet social needs in that community we're all then also looking at what are the available resources in the community to meet that need so you know often in a lot of the big urban communities that we invest in they're food deserts you know there ain't nothing but a bodega around you know there isn't a real grocery store that you can get to within a mile that's easy and so you know, the best you're looking at is a can of condensed soup uh, from the bodega. You know, look, if you're, if you're African-American with congestive heart failure and, and, um, and hypertension, a can of condensed soup is sending you to the, the ER that afternoon. And, you know, one of the hardest things that we, uh, you know, are always working to invest in is in alleviating food deserts and to make healthy food more available but also more affordable. I mean, you know, when you, were, when you were making that point, Carl, and I'm pointing out that we make cheap, shitty food cheap. You know, we basically subsidize cheap, high sodium, high fat, terrible food in this country. And then every year, the portions of it are getting bigger and they're finding, you know, new and exciting ways of packaging, you know, the most horrible stuff you can eat into new and exciting packages um in a lot of uh the communities that we're really concerned about just getting access to basic healthy affordable food it really has to be the beginning of, of that whole effort so you know we do a lot of work with uh, grocery chains and with mobile farmers markets and other uh, means of of making healthier food available to uh to vulnerable communities it's got to start there and for the folks that can't get out to the store then we'll deliver that healthy food to you. It's critical. I mean, you are what you eat. And, you know, so much of what we see in terms of black health statistics and the disparities that we see in disease burden and in care has to do far more with the zip code in which we live than than our genetic code. And you know, that, that has so much more to do with predicting your healthcare costs and your vulnerability to the system than than anything. So you first you gotta start with food. And the second I would say, cause you we were really getting after that hypertension man is stress and toxic stress in the black community is an epidemic. And it is the first feature of living in systemic racism for your entire life, which is why you see hypertension rates so high among our elders in the black community because they've lived a lifetime of systemic racism. And like I say in healthcare, in healthcare poverty charges interest and that interest compounds. So the older you get in these vulnerable medically underserved communities, the the greater your complex disease burden gets because of where you live. You know, just to kind of echo that,
1: you know, it's funny, John, is I recently just moved to Tampa, right? And when I moved to Tampa, it finally dawned on me just how real that statement is, right? The zip code you're in basically kind of even determines because, you know, previously when I lived in Michigan, I had to drive like 20 minutes to the grocery store really i mean in my town we have like one specifically but it's not you know a national chain yeah um and now i have to drive two minutes to the grocery store i have a walmart there i have a Publix there yeah i have like a whole foods around the corner i got a costco like just down the road
0: yeah
1: and 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 roll over to
0: ybor city and see how far you got to go to get to a grocery store exactly you know what i'm saying exactly that's So, you know, here in D.C., my neighborhood up in Northwest, you couldn't spit and miss a Whole Foods, but over here in my office, in one of the opportunity zones near Howard University, man, all it is is bodegas. And so, you know, that has so much that contributes to overall poor Black health as much as, as anything. But there's so many other features to it, which is, you know, what... Why we find this to be such a ripe area for investment. And why, you know, it's been my passion my entire career is because this is this is where the action is. This is where all the money gets spent on utterly preventable healthcare costs. That if we make the right investments up front and prevent those costs from occurring, then everybody's better off.
1: I love that. I, I definitely love that. And I love, you know, what, what you are doing because it does, it does solve a lot of those problems too, nice. you know, even down to, oh my goodness, you know, how we're talking about it cost 300,000 in Pennsylvania just per person. And I think that's, you know, healthcare itself is this, you know, giant beast that just always keep eating. It is insane, but I keep finding myself and, you know, this is my question for you, it comes down to thinking then about like how what you're doing then offsets the healthcare costs or the cost of going to the hospital. Because I know for me, I promise you, I grew up in Kenya. So me going to the hospital really is, is, I really stay away from it because, you know, we have a lot of our natural remedies and my mom did her job and you know, make sure we ate the right things. But I know for other people, you know, you're going to the hospital for something, an ambulance ride will cost you like or $5,000 to go three minutes down the road. So then how does what you're doing with Nightingale then start to offset, offset a lot of that for, I'm going to call it the healthcare consumer, because I know a lot of people are probably listening at this point and wondering, okay, what you're doing sounds great. But then when I go to the hospital, like, how's this really starting to impact that bill that they're ultimately going to give me?
0: Sure. Well, when your business model as ours does, depends on achieving healthcare savings, right? And avoiding costs that were preventable. The first place you have to look at is is at preventable hospitalizations because that's the biggest price tag that there is. Um, and there's so much that happens in the African-American community that is completely preventable uh, from that standpoint. Uh, when you look at most of the chronic conditions that, that plague the black community it's all diabetes, it's obesity, it's uh, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and then issues in uh, uh, substance abuse and in uh, childcare. And basically just maternal and child health is, is, has become, again, a huge issue in the black community, again, exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, in all of those cases, there are lots of ways that you can intervene with patients to try to make sure that they avoid ending up back in the hospital. The biggest thing among those, aside from diet and some of the things that we've been talking about already today is what we refer to as medication adherence and just making sure that people are taking the drugs that are prescribed them. And when you see really low rates of medication adherence in the black community, you, you, then you look at root causes. Well, one of the biggest reasons is a lot of black communities don't have a, a drugstore in them. It's not easy to get to the pharmacy to fill, fill a prescription. And then what happens when they get there is like all of us, we got to pay a big co-payment or a deductible at the point of, at the pharmacy in order to get the drug administered. Okay. This is one of the absolute stupidest things that we see in insurance design anywhere is a copayment, right? Because that's an economic barrier to access, right? So you're going to ask a lower income single mother showing up at the pharmacy after four bus bus trips to get to the pharmacy to fill her script, three kids in tow, and now she gets hit with a $25 copay to fill her insulin or um, her hypertension medication, what's gonna happen? She's not gonna take that drug. She's not gonna be able to afford it. She ain't gonna take it. And then she's gonna end up right back in the hospital a month later for exactly the same thing all over again. Same thing works with homelessness, right? Average homeless person costs the healthcare system over $150,000 a year especially in the snow belt, in the winter, these folks end up in the emergency room weekly because they got no place else to go and they're freezing, literally freezing and starving. So they go to the emergency room and we all incur a five to $6,000 emergency room hospitalization. We all pay the cost for that in our premiums for healthcare. It's so much cheaper to house that homeless person than to have her show up at the ER for five to 6,000 bucks a pop on a weekly basis. That's a month's rent in a nice apartment with food uh, and other benefits to ensure that she stays stable and safe. And so the point of our investments is it's a hell of a lot cheaper to just invest in the right thing that meets the human need before the crisis occurs that lands them in the healthcare system in the most expensive setting for what was ultimately preventable. And then if we split the savings with the insurer as we do in our investments, that's how I repay my investors. So in effect, we're providing the bridge financing for these types of human investments that prevent healthcare costs, usually driven by hospitalizations. And then we split the costs with the savings with the insurer and then that's how I repay my investors. That's our business model. Does that make sense? It's crazy, but it's working.
2: I just had to take a second and just
0: process that.
2: Um, No, what you're doing is incredible, John. Yeah, absolutely. It really is
1: incredible. Thank you. You know, but for the people that, you know, they've been listening and now that curiosity is really starting to, you know, pick up. Um, They're trying to figure out, okay, I, I might want to get into something like this now I don't know if Nightingale Partners is hiring. I don't know if anybody listening is like, oh, I want a job there. That's, that's your business. They can definitely reach out to you, but you know, for anybody really interested in getting into this field, into this industry, what steps would you suggest they take to actually make it
0: something that's viable? We are literally the only Opportunity Zone fund out there that is just exclusively dedicated to healthcare and especially to social determinants of health. Um, this is a nascent field. And it's been, it's been a crazy ride in the last two years, getting this thing off the ground in the middle of a goddamn pandemic, man. You know, the first thing when you're breaking new ground, like we are with this is your business cycle is going to take two or three times longer than you think, because so much time has to be consumed with just explaining the concept to folks like we're doing right now. And this isn't the kind of thing that just anybody can get into guys. I mean, this kind of stuff, look, these kind of investments, any kind of investments are generally made. 80% of investments are made among people who know each other. This is the ultimate boys club, right? The white boys club, especially. And doing this stuff in healthcare for the first time requires a degree of recognition and trust that, I've had to earn over over 30 years as a regulator and an innovator in the space. And I can go and meet with an insurance company CEO because they know me, they know my track record and what I've been capable of and what I've accomplished in my other entrepreneurial ventures. So I can get in the door. This kind of stuff to be blunt is not the kind of thing that your average hungry young brother from from the the other side of the, the street can just jump into and say, I want to go and do this, because it's it's dependent on these kind of relationships that, that a guy like me can get to, okay? And it takes a long time to get there. Now, having said that, there are opportunities galore within this world that I work in. And part of the reason I was so excited to come and talk to you guys is knowing your voice among young Black entrepreneurs and healthcare executives or those thinking about a career in healthcare is, man, let me tell you, this is the space that young black people need to be in. This is a four and a half trillion dollar industry. This is 20% of our gross domestic product with no end in sight. This country getting older, grayer, sicker every day that goes by. Black men have lost three years of life expectancy in this last year, just because of the pandemic, three years of life expectancy. Do you know how long it's gonna take us to get those three years back? So there has never been a greater need for young, bright, black talent in healthcare than there is right now. And we are seeing all new lines of business and careers opening up that are absolutely ripe for kids with no experience, but a hungry spirit that wanna try this out. Uh, you know, one of the facets of all of our investments is that we deploy what the community health worker that I mentioned earlier. This is basically a social worker without a license, and she is a navigator of healthcare services within her community. There is about to be a hiring spree for community health workers nationwide, but especially in, in urban Black communities where they're most needed. And that is a wonderful career opportunity for young black folks to get into. It's entry level, but it puts you right into the insurance business. It puts you in community health and public health. Right when we're starting this big vaccination drive, this isn't gonna be our last pandemic. And there's always going to be a need for folks who can help vulnerable complex patients navigate this health system more effectively. So that's one. Two is community pharmacy. And just becoming a pharmacy assistant is critical to that medication adherence I talked about earlier. Just helping elderly Black folks take the 14 medications they're supposed to take every day the right way and to make sure that they're not taking drugs that interact badly on the patient. Um, That's another whole sector of the healthcare industry that's about to explode is just around pharmacy assistants Require, doesn't require a whole lot of training or education to get into it, but the impact that um, medication counseling has, especially for complex patients in our community, is huge. And then, you know, beyond that, you're going to see, I think, a big renaissance in just looking at food as healthcare. And so you will see a, a big hiring surge for. Nutritionists and for folks who can do healthy meal preparation for delivery. Um, there will be need for healthcare logistics specialists that can help us with the supply chain of how do you get that diabetic meal from our kitchen over here to Mrs. Elmsworth's house over here every day on time and to know whether or not we have to feed the rest of her family to get her to eat her diabetic meal. So that's supply chain, blockchain, logistics, need more of our people in this space. And that's gonna be another huge opportunity in healthcare delivery. So those are just a couple of examples of entrepreneurship that we're gonna see coming up and that, you know, it present huge opportunities, especially in the Black community because systemic racism racism, and the effects of it on the health of our communities is now front and center as we've seen this pandemic lay bare the inequities of the American healthcare system. And I think there's gonna be a lot of investment behind these types of interventions. Does that help make sense? That makes perfect sense,
1: John. Thank you for sharing that. Um, For the listeners that heard that, listen, y'all know what to do at this point. He just laid out the game field for you. You have to do it. And you know um, what else y'all need to do? Yes, it is that time again of the episodes. T-shirt time. It's T-shirt time. Listen, if you want to get a T-shirt, Carl and I were in the black today because we just texted each other telepathically and decided it. But if you want your T-shirt, the black, the gray, the white, and maybe the red, and secret, secret, if you're in a text group, you'll know what else we're trying to release, but we're testing right now. Um, but if you want to get it, hey, you know what to do. Text the word shirt to 321 384 6275. Again, that's 321 384 6275. And because we care and we love y'all, we have taken notes for you. I know you're listening right now, you're mind blown away. You don't know what to do, you feel you're overwhelmed. Listen, we've put together a study guide. In order to get it, all you have to do is text the word study guide to 321 384 6275. Because at OTC, we're all about learning and applying. Mr. John Gorman has shared some gems and some valuable resources for us. But in order to get it, you have to text the word study guide, right? You have to text the word study guide. 321 384
0: 6275 is the number. See you there. I'll be down for a black t shirt, fellas. I'm going to wear it to my next band gig. <laughs> got you,
1: <laughs> got you covered.
0: Got <laughs> you. Oh man, John,
2: this was this was amazing. Like, it's helpful, fellas. Thank you, thank you so much for you know donating your time and, and you. coming on and you know being genuine. Can't say how much you know it, it really means to us and how much we really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, it was really for, for our listeners who you know this may be their first time being exposed to you and they're interested in connecting with you or following, you know, you, what would be some contact or some social media information you would want to leave with them?
0: Well, I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. Um, and then I'm on, uh, Twitter. I think I'm, uh, I'm John Gorman 18 on Twitter. That's some more of my, I'm a little less, uh, restrained on Twitter and I'm known to mouth off on, uh, LinkedIn a lot, I think I was posting today on uh, how we need to stop talking about black vaccine hesitancy and start talking about white Republican vaccine hesitancy, because that's a much bigger group and it ain't budget. We're seeing a lot more black folks opening up and being willing to get the vaccine for the coronavirus. We have seen about 60% of white Republicans consistently say they ain't getting a shot. We can't get to herd immunity if these fools keep playing this game. So. That's the kind of shit I write about on LinkedIn. (laughs) There you have it. Go follow John on LinkedIn and on Twitter for the
2: unfiltered version. (laughs) Yeah. But once again, John, you know, thank you, man. And uh, to our listeners, guys, go hit John up. Let him know how much you enjoyed this episode, how much value you got. And do me and Paul a favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, find OTC, scroll all the way to the bottom. Hit the five star and then type a five star in-depth review about why this episode was helpful or any other episode that you've listened to that really gave you value. Um, I keep saying this and I'm going to say it again. Please stop texting me and Paul telling us how amazing the episode was or how amazing the guest is. Guys, go in the app store, leave the review. So other people know how valuable that are podcast and the episodes and the guests that we're bringing are to you so with that being said um love you guys thank you so much for rocking with us john thank you once again until next time peace many blessings thank you for listening to another episode of off the clock don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast see you next episode